a question that I've been wrestling with lately, especially in light of everything going on in the world, is, is what am I willing to fight for? Maybe another way to think about this is to ask, what hill am I willing to die on? In April of 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. was leading protests against segregation in Birmingham, Alabama. He was arrested, and while he was in prison, he wrote his famous letter, a letter from a Birmingham jail. So I'd like to read just a short passage from that letter and then move on in what we're going to talk about this morning. He says, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century B.C. left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his village of Tarshish and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own town. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. So see, King was moved by a desire for justice, and, and he didn't allow his circumstances to overshadow what he was fighting for. King had a singular passion, and he was willing to suffer for it. In fact, by writing this letter, many were emboldened to take up the fight for racial equality, which ultimately led to the signing of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So we are working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippian church. Paul was also in prison when he penned his letter. And Paul also did not allow his circumstances to overshadow what he was fighting for, namely the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we'll see this morning is that God works in and through circumstances that often appear less than ideal. And it is those less than ideal circumstances that are actually some of the primary means by which God works for the advancement of his kingdom. Martin Luther King Jr.'s use of his imprisonment to further the cause of civil rights was not a novel idea. In fact, God has been using the suffering and weakness of this world to bring about glory from the beginning of redemptive history. So before we jump in, I want to spend a few minutes reviewing where we've been. Philippians is a letter of friendship. We've talked about that a lot over the last couple weeks, written to a church situated in a Roman colony where honor and status and citizenship were the highest performing currencies of the day. To be a Christian, especially in an environment like Philippi, was difficult because virtues like self-giving love and humility were actually frowned upon. So ultimately, what Paul is after when it comes to his brothers and sisters in Philippi is for them to continue living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven by embodying the mind of Christ. I want to borrow something from New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, and I have a slide for this. What Paul is doing is imparting to them in both word and through the example of his own circumstances, one, a theology which interprets and sees the world and events of the world through the eyes of God. Two, that discipleship is cross-shaped, so suffering should not take us by surprise. And three, what matters most and what drives all of what we do must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so those three ideas are going to carry us through this morning. And they're three ideas that, that kind of shape the ministry and life of Paul. And they are three ideas that really should shape 
our lives and ministry as followers of Jesus in this life. And so let's take a look at the text. Our our first point, the advance of the gospel, verses 12 through 14. I'm just going to read what it says here. I want you to know, brothers, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ or is in Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So a couple of things that pop out of those um, few verses. He begins the phrase with, I want you to know. I want you to know. Now this is a standard formula used in ancient letter writing, which as New Testament scholar Linda Belleville points out, introduces Paul's primary reason for writing. Like, this is the point he wants to us to, to fully grapple with and, 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 and embody. He then articulates the thing he wants them to know, that the thing that has happened to him, while it might appear to be a problem, has actually served to advance the gospel. In other words, Paul wants the Philippians to know that while it looks bad, God is not asleep at the wheel. In fact, he is accomplishing the very thing he set out to do, which was to advance the gospel. See, God's not taken by surprise when when things happen in this world. God's not thrown off course when things happen in this world. I want to take like a little theology pit stop here. What Paul is articulating is what theologians throughout history have referred to as God's providence. God's providence, that all things exist and happen in accordance with the counsel of God. In other words, God's purposes, what he is seeking to to bring about in this world through redemptive history, are not disrupted. Nothing frustrates the plans of God. Do you buy what I'm selling here? Nothing frustrates the plans and purposes of God. In fact, the events of this life are tools in his tool belt to accomplish his will. That should should bring us some hope. That should bring us some encouragement, especially in light of everything going on in this world. That God is not thrown off course. In fact, God is the one who is in charge of all the things that are taking place in this world. To bring about his purposes... Ultimately, the the new creation of all things is the ultimate goal, the ultimate trajectory of where this whole thing is heading. And he uses these events. And and, and what Paul is doing, he's taking his imprisonment, and and he's not squandering it. He's saying, saying, yeah, I'm in in prison. I'm in prison because of of my devotion to Jesus, but I don't want you to to be thrown off course. Just because I'm in prison does not mean God has failed. Similar to when Jesus died on a cross, it wasn't because God had failed, but rather it was because God was accomplishing his purposes through suffering. That's how God works. That's that's a major point throughout the entire letter of the Philippians, is that God works through suffering. In fact, that's one of the primary ways he works. And humility is a virtue that, that, that God himself possesses. It belongs to God, and he calls us to to embody that same sort of self-giving love and humility as we live our lives as followers of Jesus. 
And so notice this seemingly disruptive event, Paul's imprisonment, is accomplishing the will of God, the advancement of the gospel. And and the text continues, verse 13, it says this, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And and that's important, This, this, this word, so that, it's actually one word in the original language, it spells out for us what Paul means by gospel advancement. He's going to explain what he means when he says that the gospel is advancing. Those words are important when you're reading the scriptures. Words like so that, words like because, these are, these are words that, that move an argument along. And so this particular word is explaining what he means by gospel advancement. And there's two things that he means in particular for his circumstances. One, the whole imperial guard, those who have been stationed to oversee Paul and his imprisonment, know why Paul is in prison. They're aware of it. It's because of his convictions and beliefs about the person and work of Jesus. And, and make no mistake about it, because we've seen Paul in prison before and how he operates. He's always willing to speak the truth of the gospel. He's always willing to talk about his Savior. And so, so I, I would imagine that what he means for the advancement of the gospel and the fact that he's sitting there with this, this imperial guard is that he is actually proclaiming the kingdom to them. And, and what an interesting place to proclaim the kingdom, surrounded by Roman guards who are claiming that Caesar is Lord. What Paul is now doing is saying, saying, I understand what you've been taught, but let me tell you a different story. In fact, Jesus is Lord. What an interesting scenario that Paul finds himself in to proclaim the gospel a scenario that he would not have been in if he were not in prison. And so Paul doesn't squander the things that happens to him. He uses them for, or God uses them for the advancement of the kingdom. Again, we see what we were looking at last week, this kind of ping pong match. He's saying God has, is using this. God has me in prison, but, but he's the one that's, that's speaking. And so, so there, is this, there is this participation that we have with God. God is orchestrating things, but we respond in faith and trust and obedience. And that's what Paul is doing here. The second thing, his imprisonment served as an inspiration, making others more confident to speak the word. Making others more confident to speak the word. It says right here, and, and, and most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul's imprisonment emboldens them. Paul's imprisonment emboldens them. So Paul wants his readers to understand that God is in control. That one, seemingly negative circumstances, especially when they occur as a result of faithfulness, do not imply that God has stopped working. They do not imply that God has stopped working. In fact, the negative circumstances might be the very way that God is working. And three, in Paul's understanding of faithfulness, being in chains is not inconsistent with being in Christ. Being in chains is not inconsistent with being in Christ, which would have been confusing for a bunch of people living in Philippi. So Paul is reassuring them and saying, no, this is actually what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. There's something else going on here that I think is important because it says that he is, he is, he is, he is imprisoned for Christ, but, but another way of, of reading that is that he is imprisoned in Christ. So a couple of things. Paul is imprisoned because of his convictions about the person and work of Jesus is, is one understanding of that particular phrase, that, that 
that his love for Jesus, his convictions about Jesus are what landed him in prison. Also, to be in union with Christ is to participate in the sufferings of Christ. So Paul's also conveying that information, that, that those of us who bend our knee to King Jesus, who are brought into union with Christ, we not only participate in, in the resurrection of Jesus and the glory that we're going to experience at the end of the age, but we also participate in his death, in his suffering. And so Paul is also articulating this idea that in Christ means I'm also carrying my cross. And, and finally, regardless of our circumstances... We belong to Christ. Regardless of our circumstances, we belong to Christ. That's, that's an, an, important, an important truth that we need to cling to. That we need to cling to, especially in times of difficulty. Something I think that is important for us to consider. The suffering that Paul refers to throughout most of his writing is the suffering that is directly tied to faithfulness. It is a suffering that comes as a result of following Jesus. That's important because I think we often conflate other forms of suffering with the suffering that Paul is talking about. But I'm going to conflate it right now. So I'm going to do the very thing that we're not supposed to do. I'm going to do it right now. I also understand that we experience other forms of suffering, whether it's sickness, whether it's a death in the family, whether it's financial struggle. And what we need to wrestle with is how we understand and respond to that suffering. And I think a couple of questions that we need to consider as followers of Jesus, are we going to allow ourselves to be drawn near to God in the midst of our suffering? Will we use our suffering as an opportunity for God to work in and through our lives for his glory and the good of others who are walking alongside with us? And I think the ultimate question, do we trust that God is truly for us and that sometimes it doesn't look the way we might want it to look. Those are important questions for us to wrestle with as we go through life and we experience the effects of living in a sinful world. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience pain. We're going to experience death. And we're going to experience relational strife and division. And the question that we need to wrestle with regularly is, do I trust God in the midst of it? Do I believe that he is the one still seated on the throne, even in the midst of my difficulties? And that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to wrestle with. I, I struggle with that. I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. That's not something I'm always willing to accept. Well, well, I know we're going through a hard time, but God loves me. Like, sometimes I'm just like, I don't hear that. Or like, has anyone ever come up to you and said, well, you know, God works all things out for good. And you're kind of like, that's cool. But I'm like, I'm not really in the mood to hear that. And so I often think when, when we're the ones on, on the side that, that isn't suffering and we're trying to walk alongside someone who is, sometimes the best thing we can do is just be there. Just be present with them. And, and then we wait for opportunities to direct their mind back to Christ. But, but we need to be careful that we don't do it in a way that's just flippant and trite. Because right? we, we tend to do that because we, we, we like those verses. Those verses, are, they, they warm our heart, right? Like we put them on coffee mugs and everything like that. They're great. They're wonderful verses. But, but we need to be careful that we just don't like throw them at people. Because when people are going through difficulty, and, and everyone in this room has gone through difficulty because we're human, no one wants to be, be lectured to. Does anyone enjoy a lecture when you're, when you're not in the mood? Right? Like no one does. And so we do need to be careful about how we engage people. We need to do a lot more listening often than speaking. And, and, and I guarantee you that as, as you're listening and, 
And, and, and what I would encourage you to do as you're listening to people who are going through difficulties, pray while you're listening and allow God to use you. And just, God's going to, he's going to direct your path. He does. He's, remember, he's in control. He's sovereign. And the Holy Spirit's a real person who, who indwells each and every believer. And, and he guides us. And so I would encourage you to just wait, listen, and allow the Lord to, to guide that conversation. But, but that was a, you know, we're going off the path here, but sometimes it's important to go off the path. But moving along in the text, verses 15 through 17. See, what Paul is going to do is further explain God's providential hand while also modeling what it looks like to be devoted to Christ. And, and he also issues a subtle warning here that we'll look at in just a minute. So, so verses 15 through 17, let me read. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So like I said before, this section builds on that second result of Paul's imprisonment. Remember, there was a so that, and he listed two things. This is now the second thing that he lists, the emboldening of those preachers from verse 14. He divides them up into two groups. Some who preach from envy and rivalry, others who preach from goodwill. Let's talk about the second group first. This group sees that Paul is in prison. They get it. They see that he's in prison because of the defense of the gospel, like on account of the gospel. And their response, knowing full well what could happen to them, is to preach Christ. They do it from goodwill. Their, their motives are pure. They simply want to be of service to God. Self-giving love is driving them. That word agape shows up again in this particular section. It's the sort of love that gives of oneself for the sake of others. So this group of people, they love Paul. They want to be of service to Paul and of God. And so they know that, 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 the, that the Roman guards have kind of put, a, put the kibosh on the proclaiming of the gospel. And they're like, well, we gotta, we got to pick up where Paul left off. we got to keep preaching Christ. we got to keep preaching the gospel. We love this man. We love what he's done for us. We love God, and we want to serve in this way. And so that's what they're doing. Also, the leadership of Paul what an incredible thing. One who is willing to sit in a Roman prison serves as an inspiration to them. See, Paul is the sort of leader who isn't afraid to get his hands dirty. And so they love this man. They love this man. And they want to continue the work that he has started. But there's a second group. There's a second group of people here. This group preaches from envy and rivalry. Out of selfish ambition is the word that's being used there, hoping that the work they do will actually inflict further pain on Paul. This group does not like Paul. This group does not like Paul, but they love themselves. They do not like Paul, but they love themselves. Now, the jury is out on who this group is made up of. We know they're not preaching heresy. Like we, we can be confident there because Paul, if you read through his letters, he's never shy about calling out heresy. He doesn't call out heresy here. It sounds like they're jealous of Paul. Preachers get jealous of other preachers for some reason. It's, it's a strange thing that happens in the Christian world. I don't fully understand it. I fight, I fight fiercely to, to, to not allow that to happen to me and, and I, I, that terrifies me. That Literally, this whole passage right now is like something that I was kind of like trembling with, and I texted it to multiple people. I texted it to you, Pete. Like just this was a scary sort of passage for me. 
It also sounds like they don't get it. It appears as though they view the mission of God as a means for them to grow in influence, to make a name for themselves. And and this is anti-gospel. It's anti-Christian. And so I think Paul uses his words very carefully here. As we'll see in verse 18, Paul rejoices that the gospel is preached, and it is being preached in all sorts of ways, even by those who do so because of their own selfish ambition or rivalry. But that word shows up again in chapter 2, where Paul warns the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition. And this word actually isn't used all that much in the New Testament. The same word shows up in a few other places. In Romans and Galatians, these these who practice selfish ambition, these self-seekers, are destined for wrath and fury and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you catch that? The people who who exhibit selfish ambition, that's like what marks them. what, what What is laid out for them in the end is wrath and fury. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. James uses this word in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, calling it demonic. That people who who live this way, that that's the thing that marks their lives, are demonic. And so what's my point? While these preachers are being used by God to providentially advance the gospel, they are also, in a stroke of irony, being used by God to dig their own graves as the kingdom that is advancing as a result of of their preaching is a kingdom which they are unfit to participate in. You catch that? Their end is wrath and fury. Now, this should give all of us pause. As a preacher, this terrifies me. It forces me to check my motives, and, and it is a word for our elders and for anyone who teaches, whether in Sunday school, up here from the platform, in your community groups. The motive for proclaiming the good news of King Jesus must always be cross-shaped, self-giving love for God and others. That's My prayer is that we would be a church marked by that very thing, cross-shaped, self-giving love for God and for others. And that even a hint of selfish ambition would be snuffed out and that we would deal with it immediately because it is that serious of a thing. And even though God is willing to use it, he doesn't promote it. He doesn't promote it. It's also a warning for all of us as we live in a world marked by self-promotion. What is driving us? To claim Jesus as Lord is to shed this need to be liked, respected, and affirmed in everything we say and everything we post to social media. Paul wants the Philippians to know, yes, God is in control. And these seemingly bad situations have all served to advance the good news of the kingdom of God. He also wants them to know that the thing that matters most and the thing that should shape every single thing we do is the person and work of King Jesus. And while it is true that God will use even the self-serving for his purposes, self-giving love and humility are the marks of the faithful. Self-giving love and humility are the marks of the faithful. We've talked about this, that when someone comes to faith, they they are quickened by the Holy Spirit. They are brought to life by the Holy Spirit. Something actually takes place in the life of someone who has been converted to the good news of King Jesus. And so what happens when the Holy Spirit in 
takes over us. I couldn't think of the word. That's not even the word I was trying to think of. But what happens when, when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, when we are a new creation, is that, is that our lives start to change. It just starts to happen. It starts to happen. We start getting convicted of things maybe we were never convicted of in the past. We start feeling bad about, about activities maybe that we engaged in at one time and that, and that now we try to do it again and we're kind of like, oh, that didn't feel as good as the last time I did it. Like, what, what's that about? Or that didn't make me happy like it did once before. And all of a sudden we're given eyes to see. We're able to see that, that there's pain in the world and we want to engage that pain and we want to care for the people who are in pain. And our motivations start to change because the work of the Spirit is real. I want to encourage um, all of us with that, that the work of the Spirit is real. It actually changes us. And if you are in Christ, you've experienced that change. You have. And it's progressive. It takes time. But what God is rooting out in the lives of his people is this selfish ambition, this pride, this self-serving sort of attitude that doesn't care for others. The gospel is so much about love. It's so much about how we engage the world around us. Again, we talk about this regularly, that we exist so we might show the world what God is like. God is love, the Bible says. God is holy. God cares for those who are struggling. God cares for those who are in pain. He moves toward the broken, and he's calling us to do likewise. So notice something about Paul. He is so confident that God is in control of all things. He is so fixated on the person and work of Jesus. And he understands so clearly that discipleship inevitably leads to suffering. He doesn't care that he's in prison, nor that there is a group of people actively trying to hurt him. His only concern is that God's purposes advance. That's what he's about here. That's what he's about. Because it's interesting. I'm going to kind of go off script a little bit here. When, when the gospel takes root in a community, like we just said, that community changes. People change. And so there is this sense that even if the gospel is advancing through sinister purpose, through sinister um, motivations, when it takes root in a people, it's going to change them. And so that group of people will become a group of people that embodies this self-giving love and humility. And so, so while these people might be operating from, from selfish ambition and impure motives, the result is still going to be a community that is, that is growing in Christ. Now, now, God does deal with those people, and we've seen that even through, throughout church history, that there are people, and even recent church history, that there, there are pastors who, who are trying to lift up themselves, who are trying to build a platform. And, and what ends up happening is that is that they eventually implode upon themselves because you can't keep that up for too long. And we've seen that happen. I don't want to name names of famous preachers because that's just not the guy I am. But like we've seen stuff like that happen. And, and, and one thing we do notice is that when we start to hear about the people who are in those churches, they'll talk about the pain they experience, but they, many of them still will talk about the love they have for Jesus. Like, yeah, I know this guy messed up, but I still love Jesus. And let's be honest, all of us have had experiences in the church where leaders have let us down. That's one of the questions in your community group questions this week. Have you ever experienced a Christian leader letting you down? And, and you will. That's a promise. You will. The question that we need to wrestle with, are we going to allow that to shake our faith? Because while that person might represent Christ in some way, we need to move past that because Jesus is the one we worship. Jesus is the one we worship. 
And so that's a challenge for us that we need to wrestle with as followers of Jesus. We're going to be let down by people. It, and what it shouldn't do is move us away from people. I think oftentimes what happens, I'm a little bit on a soapbox right now, so just bear with me. What often happens is when people are hurt by the church, they want to run from the church. They're like, well, I'll take Jesus, but I don't want the church. But, but the fact of the matter is, is, yeah, no matter where you go, you're going to experience those people who are manipulative um, and trying to hurt you. But the reality is, is that this is where we come together to worship the Lord and where we experience the love of Christ. And so we got to fight past those difficult times. We got to fight to stick it out even when we've been let down by, by people who we respected at one time. That's just a, an aside that I just felt like I needed to talk about while we were going through this. But anyway, moving, moving along, this brings us to the final point in our sermon this morning. Uh, verse 18, he says this, what, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. This is actually Paul's main point grammatically. This is what he's driving towards in this entire passage. And we know that because of all those little verbs, um, those little words like so, that, and because. He's actually driving the argument toward this point that, that regardless of what happens, we rejoice. That's what Paul is trying to get across to the people of Philippi. I know my circumstances are, are, are somewhat dire. I know it looks like God has failed. But let me tell you, he hasn't failed. In fact, this has proved to advance the gospel. And I want you to know, church, I rejoice. I celebrate that. He's like, I'm okay, guys. I'm good. So he asked this rhetorical question, now what? And he responds, it doesn't matter to me that there are some people preaching Christ from impure motives. It doesn't matter that I am in jail. I am so excited that people are hearing about King Jesus. He, he, just, he just wants that to be what, what, what is on the minds of the Philippians. Like, it's like, yeah, I'm going through tough stuff. But the gospel's advancing. And what Paul is not doing, he's not saying that he's okay with people who use the name of Christ for personal gain. And we know that because he embedded a warning right there in the text. And he's not saying suffering in and of itself is good. Some people will take this and be like, oh, it's good to suffer. Like, like yeah, no, not really. That's not the point he's making. He's making that suffering is what it means to be a Christian. He's not saying, I love suffering. He's saying, similar to Christ, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He's not put, Jesus wasn't looking at the cross and saying, giddy up. Like, no, no. It was for the joy that was before him, what he knew the cross was going to take him to. Paul, likewise, is saying, I'm not psyched that I'm in prison. I'm psyched that what prison is doing is advancing the gospel. I'm not happy that there are people preaching Christ from impure motives. I'm happy that the gospel is advancing. God will deal with those people. That's the point. We don't relish in suffering. We view it through the lens of God, that he is providentially bringing about his purposes according to the counsel of his will. What Paul is doing is that he is teaching the Philippians that when you submit yourself to Jesus, you will inevitably go through difficulty. And the confidence we have is that the difficulty we experience is used by God to further advance his kingdom. What he's also teaching is to the Philippians is that they are part of a bigger story, one that redeems the brokenness of this world and uses it for the good of others and the glory of Christ. That's the point. 
That's what Paul is trying to convey to the Philippian church. That's a big portion of what this letter is about. He wants them to understand that God is seated on the throne, that the gospel is moving forward. You are going to experience difficulty, but that's part of what it means to be a Christian. And your job is to embody the person and work of Jesus, the mind of Christ, to to embody that humility, to give of yourself in love and tenderness and mercy toward one another so that the world might catch a glimpse of what God is like. That's the point, the advancement of the gospel. And so we do serve one another. We do provide meals for those who are struggling and going through sickness. We do care for the financial needs of people in Ukraine. We do sacrifice for one another. Why? Because we love. We're living in light of this beautiful gospel, this thing that we so hold so dear to our hearts. That's why we do it. Because we know that this is God's world. It's his kingdom. And that's how it works. And in so doing, what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that we will actually flourish as a result. We are better off for it. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's in prison and he's actually better off for it. He doesn't like that he's in prison, but he has the framework of an upside down kingdom embedded onto his brain. He knows that suffering leads to flourishing, that suffering leads to glory. And that's what we're going to see played out in this letter. That's what we're going to see in the Christ hymn when we get to it in a few weeks. That it was the suffering that led to Jesus' glory so that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's how God works. And we don't particularly love that. We're kind of like, couldn't you have done it in a different way? Like, there's other, like, I got, I mean, maybe if you asked my advice, I would have been like, maybe suffering's not the way. Maybe like a full bank account, a full belly with like a fully fit body, like a full belly and a fit body. Like, this is the means to glory, right? And Jesus is like, well, not not really. Not really. Glory does require suffering. The advancement of the gospel requires suffering. It's just, it's, just what, it's just what Jesus says. And that's hard for us to, to think through as Americans because we don't, we don't necessarily experience that same sort of suffering. But, but I, think it looks, I think it looks like you know, entering into the, the pain of a brother or sister, um, sitting with them as they're going through difficulty. It means, it means sacrificing our time for one another. And it's hard, right, because like, we're not being persecuted here in the United States. And I know sometimes we can get nervous that we might be persecuted down the line. That might happen, sure. That might happen. I have no idea. I'm not a prophet. I have no idea. Is the world growing increasingly less favorable towards Christians? Of course it is. Yes, we see that. We, we, we know that. But we still have all sorts of freedom to proclaim Christ, and no one's getting thrown in jail for it. But, but still, we're called to embody this humility, this love of Jesus, to enter into the lives of others to give of ourselves, to give of our time, to give of our finances, our resources for the furtherance of the kingdom, for the furtherance of the good news of Jesus so that people might catch a glimpse of what God is like. And then, as Peter says, we have an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that's within us. It's such an interesting thing, the way it works. I know I talk about this regularly. I know, I preach the same sermon week in and week out. I get it. I get it. But this is, the, this is the economy of God. This is how it works. And so, Redeemer Fellowship, we're going to close here. 
The heavenly perspective that Paul exhibits in this passage, it takes practice. It's a skill that actually needs to be developed. We don't bend our knee to Jesus and all of a sudden we like, we fully understand the providence of God, right? Like that's just not how it works. I know for myself, I'm, I'm nowhere even remotely close to being competent in this area of my faith. I struggle with anxiety and fear. I wrestle with the question of why God allows bad things to happen. When my kids ask me those questions, sure, I have a canned answer, but sometimes it's hard to have those conversations. I don't know if you've noticed, kids ask really good questions about God, and, and you really need to be on your toes to think through it, and it forces you to think through it. But I'm a fellow traveler and learner when it comes to this. I, I do know that I'm better at it than I was 10 years ago. I know that. But I think we can actually work out this muscle. I think there's a few ways that we can work out this muscle. The first way, I think, is taking risks with our faith. Taking risks with our faith. Um, sometimes those risks are financial. I know giving is a hard thing. I don't know if any, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but, but giving's difficult sometimes. For some people, it's not. Some people have no problem giving money to the church, giving money to needs. But for some people, it takes an act of faith. You're like, oh, okay, I was going to do this other thing with this money, but, but I'm going I'm to give. And that's hard. That's hard. I don't want to pretend. But, but taking financial risks, sometimes those risks are evangelistic. Opening your mouth to proclaim the good news of Jesus in a situation where where you're nervous to do so, whether that be at work with a friend or a neighbor, whatever the case may be, opening your mouth, a family member. Sometimes those risks are putting yourself out there and getting involved in ministry because you know that will take time. And that's hard to commit yourself to. That's a risk. The second way I think we can work out this muscle is by looking back over the course of our lives and reflecting on where we see the hand of God show up, especially in those most difficult times. That's just a good practice. That's a good, good discipline to, to look back and be thankful. Where, where have you shown up, God? Where have you provided when I did not think it was possible that I would make it through this situation? How did you sustain me through a really difficult time in my life? And that I made it through those moments where you don't think you'll make it through. Where the emotions are so heavy that you really don't think that you actually feel like you are going to die as a result of what you're feeling. And then you look back and you see, no, God saw me through that. When we do that, it, it, it builds our faith. It, it works out this muscle of trusting God. And I think the third way we do this is, is, is by finding someone who has traveled this road a little longer than us hearing their story, and inviting them to speak into ours. I mean, that's just having a mentor, right? Someone who's walked the faith for a long time and can, and can guide you along the way. So those are three, three, some of the three ways that, that we can work out that muscle. And, and so in closing, my encouragement to you is simple. God is in control. God is in control, and even when it feels as though we are losing ground and there is no hope, there is nothing that will stand in the way of his kingdom advancing, not even the gates of hell. And my challenge is also simple, but, but way more difficult. Believe that what I just told you is true and live in light of it. That's the challenge for, for what we looked at this morning. To believe what we just learned about God, the character of God, his providence, his control, and his good intentions for his people and the kingdom of God, to believe that and live in light of it. 
That's the hardest part about being a Christian, is to actually believe the things we say we believe and live in light of them. And I wrestle with that. And I know every single one of us wrestles with that. Because I don't think we'd be human if we didn't wrestle with that. But let's go to the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you so much. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your providence. Lord, that you truly are in control. That you truly bring about your purposes according to the counsel of your will. God, help us to to not only believe that in our minds, but to believe that in our hearts and in our lives. That we would walk that out, Lord God. Father, that's difficult for me. I know that's difficult probably for many of us in this room. Help us to trust you. Help us to have confidence the way Paul has confidence. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the cross, for the resurrection, for our salvation that we have, Lord God, for the forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.